You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. I started off two weeks ago talking about Adam and Eve and the, the issues that Adam and Eve, because of their rebellion, brought into the world as the consequences of the curses. That every generation passes on a set of problems that the previous and uh, the following generation will always have to struggle with. And we saw that immediately with Cain and Abel. When Cain, out of a sense of jealousy, of a sense of inferiority, got angry, and his anger turned to wrath, and his wrath turned to murder, and he killed his brother Abel. And what we learned from that lesson was when God asked uh, Cain, uh, where is your brother? And Cain says, well, am I my brother's keeper? And the lesson is, yes, we are our brother's keeper. That a family is the environment in which we learn what it means to be really accountable, responsible, caring, committed to one another. And it takes that kind of bond even when there is that stress and strain, the struggle, the problems that result from just being in a family. We are still our brother's keeper. And there's a reason for that. Because God is designed, desired to work through the nature of the family. Now God works through many things. But God works through the nature of the family to teach us something. Then we saw in the following week, the following episode of the brothers Isaac and Ishmael. And really, the great lesson about that is uh, what Abraham and Sarah had to learn. Abraham was afraid of losing control, so he took things in his own hand. And consequently, problems erupted as a result of that. And that Abraham had to learn how to be a patriarch not just a monarch, not just a lord over his family, but he had to learn to be a representative of the covenant. He had to learn what it meant to pass on the great promises that God gave. And so God tested him there at Mount Moriah and the sacrifice of Isaac. And he learned what it meant then to be the father of faith, a patriarch. And what we're going to see today is a similar story. What does it mean to be the kind of person that passes on the covenant? What does it take for me to be as a father or a brother a husband, to be a witness, a representative, a, 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 an ambassador of the covenant that God has brought into the world in the promise of Abraham. What will it take of me to do that? And we're going to learn a very interesting way in which it's described here. I'll give you a little preview where we're going to end up on that. And that is, and this is one of the most difficult, taxing, demanding things that's asked of any of us in our family relationships, is... We have to appease for our wrongs, and even harder, we have to accept the appeasement that is offered to us. And this is what we're going to learn from this great story about Jacob and Esau. But to do that, I want to go to the New Testament to raise what is this issue that we're trying to deal with, I think, in a very pointed way. Jesus talks about the families in a number of places. And Jesus was very much you know, consistent with the teachings of the Torah. That is, for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And as what was read in the scripture reading and from Matthew 5, Jesus has a very, very strict teaching on divorce. The strictest, by the way, of all teachers in scripture. Because he argues that what God has brought together, no one can put us under. God is the author of marriage, not people. I didn't make my marriage. God made my marriage. And for that reason, divorce is wrong. 
So Jesus had a very, very strong, elevated, high view of the purpose of marriage. But he says some very perplexing things about uh, what goes on inside marriage. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Here Jesus is pitting the love of family for the love of God. That there is a tendency for families to love themselves more than anything else in the world. That the family becomes the the criterion by whether they live a successful life or not. Not whether they are faithful and obedient to God, but whether the family is meeting their needs, whether the family is making them happy and prosperous and secure. Well, here Jesus is saying is that you have to love me more than your wife, your husband, your father, your mother, and your children. So the purpose of the family is to teach us, in a sense, to love God even more. That the greatest aspect, the greatest role that the family can give to us, my relationship with my wife, my brothers, my, my deceased parents. In fact, you know, the commandment is still binding on me, even though my parents are deceased. I am to honor my father and my mother, though they be dead. I have to act in a way that brings honor to their reputation and to my sons and grandchildren. All right, I have to act in a way that I love God more than I love them. Now, we see a parallel reading in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, starting verse 25. Now, large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yea, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. In Matthew chapter 10, the emphasis is on loving more. In Luke chapter 14, it's in hating. I have to hate my wife. I have to hate my sons, my grandchildren. I have to hate them. Now, some people think that what we have is that Luke rewrote what Matthew knew that Luke wrote his gospel after Matthew, and he had reason to emphasize hate rather than love more than. Uh, we really don't have any evidence for that. I mean, it's an interesting theory, but there's no real sort of compelling reason to think that Matthew took, I mean, excuse me, Luke took what Matthew had and had some sort of reason and changed it from love more than to hate. We could also think that these are two different accounts, that Jesus gave these words in two different occasions. Now, we'll say in the context in which they occur in Matthew 10 and in Luke 14, the chronology and the teachings surrounding those, 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 verse, those words are different. It's not the same chronology or the same teachings with differences there. See, it's a different part of the narrative. So my hunch is this. I think Jesus said both of those. Two different kind of teachings, but with one point. One point. And that is... In the Matthew version, we are to love God more than our family because the purpose of the family is to teach us to love God. That the purpose of my relationship with my brothers, my family, wife and children, grandchildren, is that by my example, by my commitment to them, they learn more about how to love God. That the purpose of the family is not on itself. You know, it's not should be the focus on the family. It's the focus of the family. 
What is the focus of the family? And it's to pass on the covenant. However, as we have seen in our previous two stories, and as we're going to see in this story today and the story that we're going to look at next week, is that there's a tendency within the family, and we can say this is the legacy that we have inherited from Adam and Eve, the curses that they brought into the world. There's a tendency within the family to idolize itself, both positively and negatively. Positively, it becomes the most important thing in my life. I think if I'm not successful at this, I'm a failure. That if I am not happy in this, that my wife, if she doesn't make me happy, she's a failure as a wife. If I don't make her happy, I have failed as a husband. We make the family the supreme moral commitment in our lives. We tend to do that. And that's the case, then Jesus will say, you must love me more than that. But that's also, there's a negative side of that. Uh, maybe some of you have read uh, uh, Leo Tolstoy's great novel, uh, Anna Karina. It's a wonderful novel. It truly is profound. And it opens up with, I think, one of the great insights about family life. Tolstoy says, all happy families are happy in the same way. But all unhappy families are unhappy in their own way. There's nothing like family problems. The intensity... The, the hurt, the, the suspicion, the jealousy, the abuse, the, the harm that can be done in the family can just become obsessive in a person's life. It can take them over and they can never get away from their jealousy or their sense of inferiority or their anger or their, their desire to get even with something that's gone wrong in the family, it becomes obsessive to us. I mean, you know this. I have stories I could tell you. I know some wonderful people, great people, far, far greater in almost all ways that, that I am, but they harbor some family issues that just dominate them. Those issues, in a negative way, have become their God. What's the most important thing in my life? To get even with my brother. What's the most important thing in my life is somehow break away from my parents. What's the most important thing in my life is to show that I'm really impervious, immune to my wife. What's the most important thing? When that happens, we have idolized our family. And Jesus then says, you've got to hate that. You've got to hate that tendency to idolize your wife, your husband, your children, your parents. You've got to hate it. Otherwise, you cannot really be a disciple of mine. That is a hard lesson. Because, like I said, there's no problems like family problems. And they can take us over. And all of us have stories, whether they're explicit in our front part of our minds or you know, sub, sublimated in our subconscious that deal with the issues that we've, we've had and continue to have with our children, with our wives, with our husbands, and with our parents and siblings. Okay, with that as kind of a backdrop to try to understand, I think, the significance of what we're going to find here in this great, great compelling story of Jacob and Esau, uh, let's now move into Genesis. And it starts there. I'm going to start with uh, chapter 25 in Genesis. We know that Isaac... Uh, with Rebekah 
uh, is is with child, and uh, he's a hundred years old. I think that's right. Uh, wait a minute, I could be wrong on that. But whenever the the twins are born, and she is beyond childbearing age, and so another miraculous birth occurs because Sarah was beyond childbearing age, and now Rebecca is, and the covenant had been passed to Isaac from Abraham that from him would become this numerous nation. And so how can you know a great progeny come from me if, if I'm beyond childbearing age? So God does the miraculous, which indicates to us once again that God is committed to the family. God is committed to the means by which the covenant is passed on through those intimate, powerful relationships, that God will do the miraculous to keep that going on. Well, in fact, that's exactly what happens. And she conceives, and she has twins. And uh, at the delivery, uh, one is coming out, and he's kind of reddish. And as he comes out in the delivery, they notice that there's a hand stuck on his heel. And that's it's going to be our man Jacob. Esau is the first one to be born. He's robust, he's rustic, he's rural, he's powerful, he's hairy, he likes the outdoors. He's more like Isaac. Isaac likes you know, animals, he likes the, the stars in the sky, he likes to feel the wind in his face. Right. But Jacob, though, his, word, his name means suppliant, kind of a trickster in a way, kind of a little conniving person. He's more like his mother, Rebecca. He likes to stay home. He likes to be around the kitchen, the house, the compound there. He feels very comfortable with her. Maybe a little, not all that easy around his father. He definitely doesn't feel easy around his brothers. And as they grow up, they grow up knowing that there's a divide in the family. Because the text says that Isaac loved Esau. doesn't say he loved Jacob. And that Rebekah loved Jacob doesn't say that she loved Esau. And so a sibling rivalry is necessarily born there in how the parents pick one of their own, one of them to be their favorite. A favoritism is shown in the family, and so it naturally creates this kind of division between the two brothers, a jealousy that exists between them. Because Isaac and Rebekah was not living up to their responsibilities. They had children so that they could have a favorite. Like a pet. You have a child, why? Well, maybe it'll help you when you get old or that you can play with, kind of like a doll or someone that's just favorite to you. Yeah, this I like this person. I like Esau. He's just like me. We're going to go out and go hunting. Oh, I like Jacob because you know, we can sit around and talk all day. And do, wouldn't you love to do that? I would have to say some of the greatest moments of my life, I have to say, hunting and fishing and playing golf with my father. I loved it. And frankly, uh, one of the greatest things that my wife ever experiences in her life is that when her sons sit down and just talk to her about things. Those are wonderful things. But what Isaac and Rebecca did is they divided their family based upon their own interest. What they wanted, what they needed. They thought their role as a parent was to have a child to meet their needs. Not the needs of the covenant. Not the needs of passing on the great promises that was given but that their children would meet their needs. And this creates a tremendous rivalry between Jacob and Esau. 
And Rebekah plots for her son against Isaac's favorite son, Esau. Isaac has grown blind. You know the story. It's one of the great stories in Scripture. And he realizes that he is dying and that he needs to pass on the covenant that was given him in the blessing, that he needed to bless the elder as a way of showing that he had done his job, that he was blessed by his father, passed on the covenant. Now he's going to bless the elder and pass on the covenant. Uh, Esau goes off hunting. And Rebekah sees that and says, now's the chance for me to get my favorite son, the one that I relish the most, the one that I find most enjoyment, the one who is most like me to be the favorite one. And you know the story. Has the, the meal fixed up and um, puts on Esau's clothes that smells like outdoors, uh, puts on goat hair, and so he's hairy like his brother is. And the blind Isaac Bring, you know, sees the son in front of him, takes the meal, and says, "Well, look, let me let me get a little closer." And gets and he smells Esau's clothing, and he touches his hand. Though you sound like Jacob, you smell like Esau. So maybe we ought to trust our smells more than we do <laughs> our, our sound. But uh, and uh, lo and behold, uh, that's exactly what Isaac does. He gives gives the blessing uh, to Jacob. And it's a deception. It's a trick. It's a supplant. It's a ruse. It was an act of sibling rivalry. It was active, maybe uh, active of uh, the rivalry between husband and wife. Here, they weren't a team in this. They weren't a patriarch and a matriarch together. What were they? They were a monarch. Two monarchs fighting against each other. No, this is mine. He belongs to me. No, 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 this one's mine. He belongs to me. And I'll show you that mine is better than yours. And I'll trick you. And that's exactly what Rebecca did. She wasn't a matriarch. She was a monarch in that case. Well, and uh, Esau comes in after Jacob had left and said, here, here's my meal. And Isaac says, well, look, I've already passed on the blessing. Now, I'm not really for sure why, you know, Isaac couldn't have said, well, you know, I was deceived and an injustice was done, and I'm going to correct this and make it right. Maybe there was this concept, once a word is spoken, it can never be taken back. That's probably what's behind all that. And he admits then that he had been deceived by his wife and his son Jacob. And Esau is furious. He, he is incensed with anger over this, and rightly so, that he had been betrayed by his own brother, but even worse, by his own mother. What would a mother? What would it take for a mother to do something like that to a child? What What would drive a mother to create such harm in one of her own son's lives? What is it? Well, because she felt like she was a monarch. That's what it was. I'm after. I'm in this thing for me. I'm going to be a faithful husband. I mean, a wife or a mo- or mother for what benefit it gives me. And that's why I did it. And so Esau, in rage, uh, swears that he's going to kill Jacob, his son. And Isaac uh, persuades uh, Jacob to flee, and that's what he does. And there's a long sort of period in here where um, Jacob is sent to his uncle, Leban, who is Rebekah's brother. And it's an interesting story. Remember, uh, he, he, he sees Rachel there at a, uh, at a well 
and obviously she's beautiful and he instantly falls in love with Rachel and he goes immediately up to her and kisses her and I think this is the first romantic kiss recorded in scripture I think it is anyway he wants to marry her and Levon who is a trickster himself who's pretty clever who knows how to manipulate things to get the most out of it he says well sure I'll, I'll do that and uh, but you're going to have to work for seven years <laughs> And at the wedding, what he does is, remember, he gets Leah to look like Rachel. And Jacob marries Leah rather than Rachel. And, you know, he could have said, well, look, this was, this was a fraud. I'm, this is, I'm not going to honor this kind of marriage here. But he didn't. I guess once it's said, it's locked in stone. And so Levin says, all right, all right. You're going to have to work for seven years and be my, uh, Leah's husband. And then after seven years, uh, you're going to have to, you can marry Rachel, but you've got to work for seven more years after that. So he gets 14 years of sort of free labor out of this sort of conniving with uh, Jacob. And Jacob's learning now what it meant, what it means, how much it hurts to be manipulated and tricked, just like he had done his brother Esau. All right, Esau is roughly in the same area as Isaac and Rebekah. But he marries a woman named Judith who is a Hittite. And as the text says, that caused great bitterness between the, the wife and Isaac and Rebekah because she was a Hittite. Now, I have to admit, maybe if I were more of a scholar and all this, I'd know, but I'm not really for sure why there's such animosity with the Hittites, even though they were of a different kind of race. However, though, Abraham had bought that land from a Hittite and the Hittite had honored the contract that Abraham so there was somewhat of at least amicable business relationship between Abraham and his descendants and the Hittite but when Esau marries this this Hittite woman it just embitters them very much and so their relationship is now completely broken off so here is Jacob up where Levon is and here is Esau estranged from his parents because he marries this Hittite woman. The family is fractured. That's my point. I can imagine that Isaac and Rebekah didn't have a whole lot of warm conversations. <laughs> a lot of you know trips to Disneyland or whatever <laughs> together after what happened in that, that, that sort of conniving blessing that she came up with. But they stayed together, but they were obviously a fractured family. Jacob's gone, Esau's gone, and the family is uh, in turmoil. Then we see something quite dramatic that happens with um, Jacob. This is in chapter 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him, You shall not marry one of the Canaanite women, and go unto Padan Ram, to the house of Bethel, your mother's father, and take as a wife from there one of the daughters of Lebanon. And that's the story that, that I just alluded to. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to that land where Lebanon was. Jacob left Beersheba, which here's Jerusalem, and probably 75 miles or 80 miles south of Jerusalem is Beersheba. It's in the north part of what's called the Negev Desert. And went toward Haran, 
where Lebanon is. And he came to a certain place and stayed there for the night. Because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring, and your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and the north and to the south, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you, and I'll keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised. This is the giving of the covenant now to Jacob. The covenant was first given to Abraham. You have a great descendants, and the blessing of the world will come from them. It was given to Isaac. You have a great descendants and a blessing. And now it is given to Jacob. So Jacob knows now that he is not just blessed by his father Isaac. He is commissioned by Yahweh, the Lord of the covenant. He is not just the favored one anymore the one who sort of tricked the first blessing, he now has a responsibility. He's got to do something. That his family is not there to gratify his own interest, to sort of you know build up his own sense of self-importance or prestige. That he has a job to do now. He doesn't know exactly what that's going to be. Then, the next major episode, after marrying Leah and Rachel and the various births that are given to them, Something very important happens uh, to Jacob. Uh, so, so Dennis, does the latter um, dream or whatever imagery is that before he gets married? That, uh, yeah. Yes, that's right. Married. It's before he gets married. That's right. All right. In chapter 32, this is another famous incident that uh, one of the episodes that's related to Jacob. Jacob uh, is tired and uh, he. Uh, is realizing that uh, this promise that had been given to him hasn't come to fruition yet. And the reason why, even though he has two wives and multiple children, but there's still an unsettled issue. He knows that uh, God indeed has given him what it was promised, and that is children. But he also knows that there's something else lurking in his past that may come and disrupt this. And that's this fractured relationship that he has with Esau. Verse, uh, chapter 32. Jacob went on his way, and the angel of God met him. And when Jacob saw him, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the place Mahranamim. Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau. Now, we don't find any contact between Jacob and Esau until then. I think Jacob was growing up. I think he realized that God had given him the covenant and that he had children, that he had responsibilities, but he has to solve this issue with his brother Esau. And he does. He sends these messengers out to, to Seir, where uh, Esau is, and he finds out that Esau is wealthy, far more wealthy than he is. And the fact he has sort of a mini army, 400 men work with him. And he, Jacob, upon hearing this, is terrified now. He has the inclination. 
He has the sort of deep obligation growing within him. I have to reconcile this. I have to solve this problem that I brought into this family. But now the one that I have harmed is far more mighty than I. What should I do? What would you do? Most of us would run or clam up or never call, never write, never talk. Why? We're more important in protecting ourselves, aren't we? But something is growing in Jacob. He's learning to be a patriarch. And then there is this uh, episode here where he finds out just how powerful Esau is. I'm going to pick that up. uh, Verse 17. He instructed the foremost, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you, then you shall say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. Servant. What Rebekah had done is that she switched the tables there, and Esau was supposed to be Jacob's servant, because Jacob was going to be the blessed one. But now Jacob is realizing, you know, that was wrong. I I, I perverted the natural order of things. By my own sense of selfishness and greed, I brought harm into my own family. And so now he is seeing the right order is to be a servant. What is the difference? The difference is, you know, he has a responsibility that he's got a task to do. And that task is to pass on the covenant that God has given to him. So he's, he, he is wanting now to make this right. He likewise instructed the second and third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the presence that goes ahead of me. And afterwards, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. The key word there is appease. Jacob knows he has to appease for what he has done. The family cannot stay intact. The family cannot fulfill its purpose. The covenant requires a faithful family group. And sometimes that means appeasement has to be done. This is a tremendous change in Abraham, I mean, in Jacob's heart. And the reason why I think that is because he now realized, once God speaks to him directly, that he has a task to do. This is sealed. Sort of, um, uh, you know, in the old days, whenever they'd write a letter and they had that wax and they put the seal on there. This, this, this change in Jacob's heart towards being a conniver, suppliant, now to being the appeaser, of his brother whom he wronged is sealed by this wrestling match that he has. All right, he ha- he's off. He takes these servants with him. And Jacob was left alone. A man wrestled with him until daybreak. Now, that's all it says. Jacob's sitting around. All of a sudden, a guy shows up in camp and they start wrestling. What are you to make out of that? What would you think? Something significant is happening here. I didn't plan this. I didn't order this. This was not what I wanted. But I'm going to have to take this on because this man breaks into my camp. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket and Jacob's hip 
was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. That's that seal. And putting his hip out of joint, he is now sealed. Then he said, let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And so he said to him, what is your name? And he said, I am Jacob. Remember, it's suppliant, that is, a conniver. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. The name Israel means the one who strives with God. That's what it literally means. He was no longer a trickster, but the one who would work hard enough, who would do what it would take, would even struggle and lose in order to seek God. That's the big chain in Jacob's life. And that's why he is now one of our patriarchs. He illustrates to us what it means to sort of move over these hurdles that our families put up in our lives. That is a sense of self-importance or a sense of permanent hatred. These kinds of obstacles that keep us from being faithful people. That what Jacob is now saying, that I will strive hard enough. I will do what it takes. I will even appease my brother Esau in order to seek God. It's a great name to be called Israel. Uh, so Jacob called that place Peniel, saying, For I have seen the face, I mean, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. And this man who wrestles with him, he sees God. He sees what God has put upon him. He sees the covenant there. That the struggle that he has gone through with this man and the dislocated hip was a manifestation of God in his life. He now knows who God is. Face to face. Not just by word, but face to face in this wrestling match. In his striving to be faithful, he is participating in the life of God. Moving from Jacob to Israel, he is now dwelling. He is involved in. He's wrapped up with the very purposes of God now, to the point where it's seeing God face to face. Well, it comes to a dramatic, and if you don't feel some emotional grip on this, um, you need to go get another cup of coffee. Uh, it, it is such a powerful story. Chapter 33. Now, Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids, and he put the maids with their children in front, and then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. What do you think about that? <laughs> That's the part of that story that, that grabs me the most, because he is still acting like his mother acted toward uh, himself and, uh, and Esau. You know, that... He is showing favoritism by putting the one he didn't care for up front. That's so true. if anything happens, you know, she gets knocked out first, and he's got Rachel in the back, you know, so she'll be saved. That, that, the selfishness is still there. That's it. <laughs> he, has, he has not been completely converted yet. Right. Something is needed. His transformation still needs one more step. Good point. He himself went on ahead of them, bowing himself to the ground seven times, until he came near his brother. What was he doing? 
bowing down seven times. He was saying, I want to appease what I have done wrong. I am willing to sacrifice now to you. I am willing to even make my own family vulnerable to you. I'll make my own life now a sacrifice to you. I will do what it takes to get right with you. I, I can't imagine the fear he must have been feeling at that moment. Uh, and it, it maybe it's even more than fear. You know, all the uh, I'm out of my league in saying this. Uh, I'm not a professional in these matters, but just from my own experience, you know, family problems are never just a matter of propositions, <laughs> like a contract. It, it's, it's not a contract problem. That is, if you had just better wording, you'd have you know better relationships. All family problems are wrapped up with memories. Memories. I guess what sentences are in a legal contract, memories are in family relationships. And so here is Jacob bowing down seven times to Esau. And I suspect Jacob, when he is doing that, is remembering, conniving with his mother, remembering deceiving his father, remembering the rage that he saw from Esau, remembering the fear that he had when he runs off, remembering that he heard that Esau had an army of 400. All that is there before him. And Esau, the same way. Esau remembers that he had been duped by his mother. Oh, what a horrible thing. What would you do? I, I don't know. That would be hard to get over, wouldn't it? That you'd been duped by your mother. The one who brought you into the world, nursed you, has now deceived you. I don't know. Praise the Lord, my mother never duped me. I mean, she wasn't perfect, but I was never tricked like that. And so I don't have to carry that. But some people do carry that. And that's a profound, um, uh, gripping emotion to carry. And there is Esau. And when he sees his brother, that's what he is seeing. He is seeing all these memories. And I think that this is one of the great miracles of Scripture right here. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. And they wept. He accepted Jacob's appeasement. I think the lesson here is that families require appeasement and acceptance of appeasement. Families require those people who have done wrong to work hard enough to get it right. And here's the harder part. And those who have been wrong to accept appeasement so that it can get right. Why is that? Do you love me more than these? We have to love God more than each other and our own selves. We have to be part of this great story this great legacy from Abraham and Sarah that we too have received this covenant. You know, in our baptism and in our oath and our vows to God and our confession of faith, all these things that we do commonly in our Christian life is in a sense our show, our commitment to join the family of Abraham and Sarah to be part of this great story of the gospel that we have not only received grace, we're going to be part of a way of passing it on as well. That my life becomes just like Jacob's now. 
whatever it takes to appease and to accept appeasement to pass this on. Now, I would say, um, um, you know, our, uh, our children are worth it, aren't they? Our grandchildren are worth it, aren't they? Aren't they worth the great blessings of Abraham and Sarah? So whatever it takes for me to appease and to get appeasement, I should do that. Uh, I'll conclude with the story here. It's a little personal, um, and you probably have stories like this too, but it was a real lesson for me, similar to wrestling with this guy. Uh, I don't know how much to say, but uh, like all families, we went through a very difficult time. Uh, raising children went through a very difficult time. And my children are great. They're wonderful. God bless them. I'm happy. I, I, I'm blessed. But, you know, raising teenagers is a full-time job. Well, we, we had some dark days. And, and I used to pray, Oh, Lord, give it to me. Put, put what they're doing on me. I want to bear this for them. And um, it, it just, uh, it was onerous for me. And I remember we were in another town uh, and we had gone to an Episcopal church and all of us were together and uh, time to come to the altar for the communion. We were there kneeling down and it was like a bolt of lightning. I sort of heard the, the voice of God said, you don't need to be his savior. He already has one. You just witness of that. I, it was my Jacob moment. It really was. I wrestled with God at that moment, and I mean, I knew it in 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 principle. I knew it, you know, as a proposition, but it really became even more so a part of my heart. He already has a savior. I am not my son's savior, my grandchildren's savior. I'm not your savior. But I am my son's patriarch and my grandchildren's patriarch. And my job, your job, is to pass on that covenant. So, in conclusion, every family, in order to do that, will have to experience appeasement at some time or another. And it's worth it. Let's close with prayer. I pray, O oh Lord, that all of us be patriarchs and matriarchs of Thee. We are blessed beyond all measures to receive this great inheritance. Help us, O oh Lord, to do what it takes to pass it on. In Thy glorious name, Amen. Alright, next week we're going to look at Joseph and the other brothers. And that's an interesting story, too. So, thank you. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.